Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. It was the Saving Private Ryan of times. It was the 1941 of times. It was the age of Schindler's List. It was the age of the BFG. It was the epoch of Jaws. It was the epoch of Munich. It was the season of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was the season of the Post. It was the spring of E.T., the extraterrestrial, and it was the winter of the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Try saying that five times fast. We had 34 Oscars before us. We had one Razzie before us. We were all going direct to West Side Story. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insist on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. In simpler terms, tonight, we're looking at the history and many facets of Steven Spielberg. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Yeah, I'm that guy. I'm the guy who enjoys the terminal. Hey, I also enjoy the terminal. That's why we're co-hosts. This is a bond. God bless Krakosia. Oh, there's a little baby Diego Luna in that movie. <laughs> so cute. Also joining us, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I will defend War of the Worlds to my dying day. No, goddammit, we're talking about the terminal. <laughs> I mean, same exact plot. How ballsy of us would it be, though, if we just did, like, a three-hour episode on the fucking Terminal? Got really deep into the text. I like the idea Jamie suggested that the Terminal is some sort of side quill to War of the Worlds. Like, Tom (laughs) Hanks gets out of that goddamn airport at the end of the movie and then immediately has to face down alien invaders. So it's Ken Cloverfield Lane? (laughs) No, what I imagine is he steps out of the Terminal coughs blood and falls to the ground and then Morgan Freeman walks out like Rod Serling. <laughs> little little did character's name no. Just call him Tom Hanks. <laughs> Vehicle for Tom Hanks. Uh, his body was not immune to the carcinogens that American corporations and all their wisdom put upon this earth. <laughs> See, you, you get a romantic romp and you're left with something to think about. That's classic Spielberg. Everybody runs. <laughs> So when I first proposed this episode at the start of our Spielberg month, it was based off of a Twitter joke I saw that essentially summed up Spielberg's recent output as one for the studio, two for no one in particular, which was an idea that that it really struck me. Like I thought, oh, that's not only humorous, but factual (laughs) as I I drank my tea. But it, it kind of struck me the idea that Spielberg was operating in conflicting modes where he'd give us an adult serious drama like bridge of spies followed by a juvenile fantasy comedy like the bfg you know it's the tale of two spielbergs you get the dark edgy spielberg and the spielberg who reveled in the light and then that concept was immediately proven as dumb the second we started doing research for our minority report episode that came out a couple weeks ago researching that movie i found a clip of spielberg talking about how he liked to categorize the films in in his head there were his dramas made to embrace the emotional power of cinema, and there were his entertainment films made to bring joy to his audiences. So he kind of saw Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List as his dramas, and things like Minority Report, which I had thought of as a very dark film, as entertainment. And he's absolutely right. If you go back and watch those three movies, one of them is not like the others. 
you go back and look at Minority Report, even though it's basically a film noir and a, a dark view of a upcoming inescapable police state where murderers control the justice system, it's it's filled with levity. There's a lot of jokes. There's a playful tone. There's goofy stuff like uh, Tom Cruise having to run down a hallway chasing his own eyeballs so they don't fall down a grate. That's entertainment. Whereas Schindler's List is a very serious, dark film that does not stop to make jokes every couple of minutes so the audience feels comfortable. Then we did a commentary for Hook, where, you know, again, that's supposed to be a kid's movie, just expanding on the legend of Peter Pan, Fluff. And instead, you get a film where Robin Williams is pretty much a workaholic asshole father who has let all the inner joy inside of him die and is now treating his children as nuisances. There's a lot of darkness and light mixed comfortably in all of Spielberg's films except for the ones where he decides that shouldn't be the case and it's just going to be one mode. It's it's not Spielberg, as I originally thought, alternating quickly between two poles, serious, then dra- uh, comedy, but more like he's swirling between them in every project. He's got these conflicting styles that kind of mesh in each story, except for when he consciously says, no, this one's going to be just this. Uh, very much so. It's like the tale of two Spielbergs is not a tale of a career torn it in two. It's a career of a left brain and a right brain working in harmony on every project. Yeah. It's not, not really until you delve into it, you realize there's lots of films that are on the, you know, absolute polars of Spielberg styles, but most of the time there's actually more of a mix than you'd expect. Yeah. I, I went through and made a list of Spielberg's films in chronological order and then tried to classify them just by like genre and tried to think about how serious or not serious each one was. And I was thrown off by the kind of trends that appeared because I originally thought he was alternating, you know, do a serious one, do a comedy one, do an Oscar one, do a box office one. Not really the case. You go back to his early stuff. Uh, I don't know anything about his first movie, Firelight, which was apparently a flying saucer movie in 1964. So we'll skip over that. But Duel, 1971. I mean, that's essentially a horror movie. Then he did Something Evil, which is a made for TV movie the next year. Still kind of horror. He did something called Savage, which, again, I know nothing about. That came out in 1973, more of a drama, I guess. Then there was his big breakout, The Sugarland Express, 1974. At this point, he's making about a movie a year. Pretty serious crime movie, although it has some levity inside of it. But he follows that up then with Jaws, 75. Again, kind of a horror film, which is surprising to think that three of his earlier earliest efforts are really horror films. Oh, well, God, the first thing he ever directed for... Universal was the pilot to Night Gallery. Yep. Right. Like, you think Spielberg, you really don't think, oh, that guy's into scary sequences. And then you think back to, like, the Lost World, Jurassic Park. As a kid in that theater, the Velociraptor chase scene was terrifying. I've always considered Spielberg, like, a secret horror director. Not even, like, the obvious way, you know, Jaws is a horror movie. But Mm -hmm. Spielberg uses horror language constantly. In his pictures, there's a, um, a great, um, I think we may have brought it up before, uh, Patrick Wilms video online talk about uh, Spielberg and his horror stylings. I mean, it's, it's why it doesn't take a huge leap to go, well, I don't know if I buy into Spielberg directing Poltergeist, I can see it. Yeah, I would, I would firmly say I don't believe Spielberg directed Poltergeist. Same. My interpretation of that situation <laughs> years after the fact so you know i'm not in the know i just know what people post online is basically hooper was directing the film but he also didn't want to tell steven spielberg no to a lot of his ideas i think spielberg was on the set he was always willing to offer an opinion if asked and hooper would oftentimes just take spielberg's ideas 
And people interpret that as Spielberg directing the picture. I think that's just him stepping his producer and saying, hey, what if you did this or that? Yeah, if that's Spielberg directing the movie, then Spielberg's ghost-directed a lot of movies in his career. He (laughs) ghost-directed Bumblebee. Right, then half the movies out there are really ghost-directed by the producers. Yeah. So I don't really buy into that. I think Hooper really made that film and just listened to the advice given to him by the ultra-successful producer he had. Which, I mean, (laughs) would you ever tell Spielberg no? If he was like, what if he pulled his flesh off and threw it in the sink? He'd be like, fuck it, yeah, that sounds rad as hell. One of my favorite stories about Spielberg ever comes from the amazing documentary Tales from the Script, where someone, I'm blanking on the writer's name, but it was somebody who was attached to War of the Worlds briefly in pre-production, who I don't think any of his stuff was used in the final movie, but he was telling a story about how difficult a time he had breaking that story for Spielberg, and he would get these visits from Spielberg where he would seemingly just say nonsense to him and say all of these contradictory, like backwards thinking things that just made him think that Stephen was senile until he actually sat down to write another draft and put all of that in place and realized, oh my God, Spielberg just saved the picture. (laughs) Still not good enough for Spielberg to use that script, but that was the come to Jesus moment that author had oh, some people actually do know what they're doing. Some people have storytelling in their blood. And some people just like have an innate knowledge of that kind of stuff that, that can't always be communicated in the best way. Oh, definitely. If you listen to enough Spielberg interviews, you start noticing there's a lot of times where stuff statements he's saying doesn't make a lot of sense. Or they're kind of backwards or... They they contradict themselves like that story. He's just speaking in palindromes. I'm onto his secrets. <laughs> and you stop and go, oh, Spielberg talks the language of cinema, which doesn't actually exist. Like, so yes. this is how Spielberg talks whenever he's not direct. <laughs> yeah, there's always that's something that always frustrates me whenever I see Spielberg undersold as a commercial director or an overly sentimental one. Somebody who either lets his wallet make the decisions on which projects he starts or reflexively picks uh, his projects based on what makes his heart sing. If you look at Spielberg's filmography, you can see a very intelligent through line. Joking about segue the- back to my list of Spielberg facts? No, Cody. But I only got to Jaws. <laughs> but uh, we were talking about the Terminal earlier. It's like, yeah, we can make fun of the terminal for being like one of the outliers of Spielberg's career. You actually listen to Spielberg talk about the terminal, and that's the sister movie to Munich. Like he directed this cold docudrama about a clash of cultures and miscommunication and just the horrors that happen when people just cannot see eye to eye. And then as part two of that, he directed a fairy tale about language barriers. It would have really done better at the box office if they hadn't switched the laugh tracks. <laughs> oh, Eric Bana weeping as he made love to that woman, just getting the biggest woo! <laughs> that would be appropriate for Eric Bana. But um, <laughs> Spielberg, it's, it's interesting, I, and it never really occurred to me then when I actually heard Spielberg talk about this. Oh, Spielberg's obsessed with language and people communicating. And it's a through line almost through all of his films entirely. And you really only 
get to Amistad where it doesn't work out. <laughs> but it's still interesting to like, I think there's a lot of themes uh, beyond, you know, nostalgia or child, childhood wonderment stuff that I, I, I think are taken for granted when it comes to Spielberg. Um, even by, you know, myself, I feel like I've actually, doing research for this, taken a lot of Spielberg for granted in his stylings as an auteur. He's not often thought about in, um, I think, terms of like Kubrick or or Fincher or, or even Wells or, or whatnot of, you know, people who are very precise and obsessive and, you know, and paint perfectly uh, to get the correct image. Spielberg does that. He just he's not obtuse about it and he does it very subtly. Like it's not he doesn't just have oh specific camera angles um he he continually reuses cuz oh, that's a Spielberg move. That's a Spielberg push in. Yeah, that's a Spielberg oneer and stuff like that. Spielberg might be one of the greatest directors to understand um almost like uh someone someone being able to decipher matrix code. Like, he can decipher how cinema works. Like, cinema boiled down to its simplest terms are image and sound. And Spielberg might be the best at utilizing image and sound to tell a story. Yeah, it's like there are so many directors I have more of an attachment to to Spielberg. But anytime I hear someone say Spielberg is the greatest living director, I cannot put up an argument. Nuts and bolts, nobody has it down pat better than that guy. And, and if you look at the proficiency, too, there's so many years in his career where he would have, like, two films come out in one year that are drastically different movies. 93 gave us Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. That's, that's <sighs> top-tier filmmaking in two completely different directions in one year. That'd be almost impossible, I think, for anyone in this day and age to try and do. Like, no studio would think, yeah, one guy could make both of those films in one year. Or if you look at other years, 2002 gave us Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. And one year prior to that, he finished Artificial Intelligence. All of that in a two-year span is pretty goddamn impressive. He, he made a Bridge of Spies and, and whatnot while he was working on Ready Player One. The most Spielberg, I think, story possible is one he told when he was making Schindler's List. He had rented uh, satellites so that way he could have... <laughs> post-production stuff for Jurassic Park beamed down so he could download it and work on it like uh, special effects stuff. So at night, while work that day was done on Schindler's List, he'd beam stuff down from a satellite and work on dinosaurs. <laughs> and then pop in a Seinfeld VHS. <laughs> Just, yeah, the that might be one reason why people don't think of Spielberg as the kind of Kubrickian perfectionist, because his output is so prolific. The dude's been averaging a good number of movies since, uh, what, 1964 when his first film came out. There's a bit of a gap because his first one, I think, was just kind of like a student film. And it took him a while to get into real TV work. But after that, it was about a movie a year until he got up to 75. And there's a two-year gap for Close Encounters, another two-year gap for 41, another two-year gap for Raiders. And then after that, it takes up, again, a movie a year. E.T., his segment of The Twilight Zone, Temple of Doom, The Color Purple. Like, all those back-to-back-to-back-to-back. To back to back to back. There's no breaks. And then there's a lot of years, like we were just talking about, where you'd have two movies come out in a single year. The Last Crusade and Always both came out in 89. So he must have had some overlap on those two projects. That just boggles my mind that he is able to make so many things. Uh, set 97, Jurassic World 2, and Amistad. 
and a year later, Saving Private Ryan. Jesus. So he's overlapping all of those projects at one time because Saving Private Ryan wasn't a small thing. I'm sure he must have been thinking about pre-production while he's finishing up Amistad and Jurassic World. Uh, War of the Worlds and Munich both came out in 2005 with The Terminal the year before that. God, it doesn't feel like they were all so close together. Whenever a Spielberg movie comes out, it feels like... You know, when a Tarantino movie comes out, like it's been 10 years where we're being blessed with a new Spielberg movie. <laughs> Fucking one comes out like every six months. It's, he's like Stephen King, except the output still makes sense and is good. Well, that's it. Ready Player One was 2018, but there was the post the year before that, the BFG the year before that, Bridge of Spies the year before that, and then a huge gap three years between Lincoln and Bridge of Spies. God, that is a director with an output that allows for Warhorse to come out and be nominated for an Oscar and be forgotten about by the time his next movie comes out. <laughs> that is insane to me. And Warhorse he was making while he was also working Peter Jackson on The Adventures of Tintin. They were both 2011 films. Oh yeah, that CGI uh, motion capture movie Steven Spielberg made that people also slept on. <laughs> That's... I guess another great facet of Spielberg is the fact that he has not limited himself to one genre. There are certain filmmakers where you notice, like, they've got a thing, it works for them, that's what they're going to do their whole careers. Hell, look at someone like Eli Roth. He's pretty much known for doing movies like Hostel, and he just recently kind of broke the mold because he did a kid's horror movie in A House with a Clock in Its Walls. Spielberg, on the other hand, we've got horror films in Jaws, we've got straight-up dramas and stuff like The Post— We've got action films in the Indiana Jones series. We have fantasy films like Hook or Always, sci-fi kind of stuff like Jurassic Park. Which eh, Would you say Jurassic Park is more sci-fi, horror, or action? I'd probably go with horror myself. i definitely go with sci-fi horror. Yeah. I'd put the horror before the sci-fi. Yeah, that's the closest to a straight horror film I think he's ever done. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But then, you know, he's done straight-up sci-fi, too, with AI. And the Minority Report's a sci-fi action film. Catch Me If You Can is kind of a crime comedy drama. The Terminal is a drama comedy romance. Like, he's done so many different genres, and he, he can switch between them pretty fast. Well, something I've noticed about Spielberg that you can kind of set your watch to is anytime he's talking about one of his favorite directors, one word will pop up over and over again. Chameleon. Ah, oh, the, the guy was a chameleon. Victor Fleming was a chameleon. Michael Curtis was a chameleon. And he's gone the record as plainly stating this before. The directors he actually feels a connection to and feels that he's in league with aren't the auteurs. They're the workmen, the people who could adapt to any genre and tell any kind of story. The people whose storytelling skills were fluid. And going back to something you were saying earlier about how easy it is to take Spielberg for granted because his style can be so invisible. I think that's the paradox of Steven Spielberg. He is the most successful director in the world. He's a household name. People talk about the Spielberg tone like it's something you can bottle and sell over the counter. But I feel like his greatest desire is to be invisible as a filmmaker. Like his, his ideal style is to have no style. Yeah. But at the same time, Spielberg cannot hide his influences and he cannot hide the things that he loves and the things that he's interested in. Because if those scripts didn't have the things he loved and the things that pushed the Spielberg buttons, why would he be interested in the first place? Yeah. I think you get a bit of a, a mix with Spielberg because there's some of his films where you look at him and you go, oh, that's <laughs> trademark Spielberg. He can't hide some of his things. But I feel when he's doing entertainment movies, 
he lets that fly a little more. He doesn't mind using some of the same bag of tricks. Yeah, he definitely finds it's more appropriate there. Yeah, when you get to his actual drama films, they don't feel like Spielberg at all. Watching just just a couple of days ago, I watched uh, Schindler's List, and it's amazing going back to that film because it does not feel in any way like a Spielberg movie. Most of the choices he's making do not feel like typical Spielberg. And one of the big things I would point out with that, too, is the biggest criticism I see against Spielberg is that he is too sentimental. Uh, I think that kind of pops up in a lot of the critiques of War of the Worlds because at the end, it's a happy reunion between a family after thousands have been killed off by aliens in images that are designed to reflect 9-11. But you get to something like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List, and boy, you, you don't get a lot of sentimentality there. There's just gruesome things happening. He's not trying to make it overly grim with no points of redemption, but I, I think he makes a conscious choice when he's making an entertainment film that it's okay to be entertaining and it's okay to have kind of some schmaltzy elements or redemptive pieces. Whereas in a drama, I don't think he goes that same route. You could maybe say sellout, but I don't think that'd be the case. I think in his dramas, he wants to stay true to the emotion of the form and the power cinema can hold and less so on the easy entertainment factor that he can give otherwise. Yeah, I, I, I think Spielberg sticks with emotional tracks in uh, the film that he's making more than he's given credit for. Um, I don't think he just inserts, you know, small C stuff because he's Spielberg and, you know, he, he wants a lots of feels. He has gone yeah. overboard with that stuff, and, you know, things like Hook and, and whatnot. But even that, I don't think, can be completely thrown on him. Well, when people talk about him, they make it seem like a compulsion. Like, he, he can't help himself. He has to make it this way. Yeah, like and it's And I would argue it's a choice. It's definitely a choice. I mean, and I think he's even hyper-aware of what Spielberg, you know, even camera moves make a person feel. Like, it, it, it almost has a resonance with an audience now. Is you even have moments during the like the beginning of Schindler's List where he start he puts in certain moments Spielberg shots that completely fall away as the film goes. But there's a couple moments at the beginning, whenever you're being introduced to characters, he does a Spielberg thing very subtly. But it's because he's aware of what a Spielberg thing does. And then he can take it away. And the same thing I think with with emotion with uh, the emotion stuff is he doesn't layer it in there just because uh, he's a very emotional person. And he doesn't actually do it as much as people think. Like, the like he actually finds the ending of, like, you know, Empire of the Sun to be fairly downer. Um, and you could look at that as, you know, some more sentimentality on Spielberg's part, but if you actually watch the film on his perspective, it's kind of a downer. And a lot of his movies are, like, there's a lot of emotion at the ending of Saving Private, Saving Private Ryan, but it's... Not in the way I think people are are saying it is. It's more mixed. It's it's more of like downtrodden emotion. So I, I don't. I I think they. Um, it's a criticism that's just unfounded to me. And and like you said, it's something Spielberg is very hyper aware of. Like it's it's hilarious hearing Spielberg uh, go on record to say that Stanley Kubrick came up with the end of AI, not <laughs> him. <laughs> he is not the one who decided the boy lives. That might be another point to go into. We mentioned before kind of the auteur theory, and I know I'm certainly guilty of this, but we, we have a tendency when talking about movies to lay everything on the shoulders of the director. Like it was all Quentin Tarantino. He did the entire thing. 
which in some cases proves more or less true, but it discounts the contribu contributions, contributions, if I can use words right, of all the other people in that cast and crew. Sure, maybe you have a director who wrote the script or came up with a story, but what about the DP? They've got a huge influence on the film. Or maybe they're trying out a new composer, or they have a new costume designer, or something else along those lines. I mean, hell, the second unit guys can direct almost half a film, and we have a tendency to overlook what they've brought into the project. With Spielberg, I mean, who's going to say no to Spielberg? But we still, I think, need to recognize the fact that not everything he does is 1,000% him. Yeah. And even looking at the source of most of his movies, like, he's trying to stay true to some form of inspiration. Like, half of his movies are based off of books. Duel is from Richard Matheson, Jaws is Peter Benchley, BFG, Ready Player One, Jurassic Park, and its sequel, Minority Report. Tintin is based off of the comic series, War Horse, an old book, and I think a play. Or maybe they made the play after the book. War of the Worlds, Hook is Peter Pan, Empire of the Sun, The Color Purple. All that is just pulled from, you know, existing novels or short stories or comics or whatever. Uh, he's doing West Side Story soon, so he's taking inspiration from plays and all that. Uh, and even real life, he's trying to stay true to real life stories like, you know, the biopic of Lincoln or Bridge of Spies, The Post, The Terminal. The Terminal, I think, has more fudging than most of the other ones, but it is loosely based on reality. All that stuff. It's, it's amazing if you look at his filmography and realize, wow, about 90% of it is really just inspired from different things he had an appreciation for and trying to stay semi-true to the source. You could even say something like Indiana Jones is really just a conglomeration of all the pulp inspirations they had. Oh, big time. Yeah. Spielberg likes anchors. Like, he seems to like to set himself up with an anchor to build the film around. Be it something that's adapted or uh, even just a callback to something, even a feeling that he had, like with, with Raiders and Indiana Jones and stuff, or a couple other things. Like, and they're not based explicitly on anything, but... You can tell he, he's anchoring the entire idea and what he wants to do to something. Also, it was a little surprising to me going over his filmography to realize how few sequels there are. I mean, obviously there's Jurassic Park 2, but I think he basically said he took that just to prove that he could do a great sequel to it because he thought he was the great Spielberg and kind of regretted his choice later. And the Indiana Jones series, where I feel like a lot of that comes down to the fans keep demanding more, and George Lucas every once in a while kind of needles them on and says, eh, why not one more? But a majority of all the other things he's done, they're, they're all solo films. Maybe someone else will pick them up and make a sequel, but very rarely. We might get a 10-10-2 in the future, but Peter Jackson said that's his project. I don't think we'll ever get a Lincoln 2 or the BFG 2 this time it's personal. You know, it's <laughs> amazing to look at it where he finds that germ of an idea he really likes, explores it in one film, and then goes... Great, I'm done. Move it on. Like hell, he was for just like a hair's breadth attached to an original Jaws two that would have been about the Indianapolis. How weird so would like, that have been? I mean, that's early enough in his career where Spielberg was still building his legend. But boy, what if he'd started off and it's like his second big picture was really just him doing a cash in prequel? Well, that's the thing. That's the Jaws sequel that wouldn't have been a cash in. It's like. Even that early in Spielberg's career, he's like, no, I just want to tell the stories that drive me. And did you fucking hear Robert Shaw tell you about the Indianapolis in that movie? <laughs> Don't you want to see that as a full-length horror film? And that's Jaws 2, prestige Jaws 2? I still want to see the National Lampoon's version of Jaws. <laughs> 
I'm very sad. Apparently, Spielberg personally killed that one. He found out they were doing a comedy version of Jaws and told Universal, like, hey, it's it's that movie or me. Make your choice. And they went, oh, fuck you, because Let- Universal isn't completely filled with idiots. Let's make Jaws the Revenge instead. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be personal this time. That's what I'm confused about. They killed Jaws 3 or 4 or whatever the fuck it was, the original Lampoon version, and instead gave us either Jaws 4, which is just abysmal bad, or Jaws 3, which is hilarious bad. Like, he's against it being lampooned on purpose. <laughs> it can only be on accident. Or with 3D. But uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, I think that's uh, part of the magic of Spielberg is that he still has the mindset of a 21-year-old who's just about to start his first movie. (laughs) Like, he still has that film nerd thing of, no, 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 I want to tell a story in every single genre. Like, I remember something I've heard him say about Munich, that as much as he wanted people to take the political messages of the movie to heart, he was also really disappointed that nobody commented on what a cool spy movie he made. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. I like, I, I did a De Palma movie. Didn't you see? <laughs> Talk I mean, about that's, that. That's very fair. When I was going through and putting a genre to all of his films, I did not put Munich under like the action film area or anything like that or suspense. I just labeled it as drama and moved on with my life, which probably isn't fair. I mean, a lot of these I tried to be reductive on purpose so I could lump them all together. It is weird to think that we're currently living through the political drama period of of Steven Spielberg, like between Bridge of Spies, The Post, even even Lincoln. Yeah. Well, if Historical look, docudramas are his serious jam at age 72. We've got a split. If you look at the last 10 years, let's say, you've got The Adventures of Tintin, so action film. That's basically new Indiana Jones. Uh, then War Horse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, so three dramas in a row. The BFG, which is as lighthearted fantasy as I think you'll ever get from Spielberg. Then The Post, another drama. But then he jumps all the way hard again to sci-fi action with Ready Player One. His next picture he's working on right now is supposed to be West Side Story, so he's trying a musical for the first time. And theoretically after that is Indiana Jones 5. So it's a lot of drama. I mean, in 10 years. We're also forgetting the Blackhawks movie. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, let's not forget for a couple of years, he was trying desperately to make Robopocalypse. Yeah, <laughs> that one's been backburnered. There, there, I mean, with Spielberg, he moves quickly, but he also picks up like 10 projects at a time. So it's tough to tell what he's going to do three projects out. No, he's like uh, Del Toro, except at least one of these is going to happen. <laughs> I'm pretty confident we'll get West Side Story since he's working on that one. And Indiana Jones 5, because I'm sure Disney is just begging for it. After that, I have no idea what his next project is. Because I'm sure by the time he finishes West Side Story, I'll have like three more he's attached to. I even said he's still mulling whether or not he'll actually direct uh, the sequel to Ready Player One. Depending on if he just wants to go do that work again, more or less. Yeah. It's it's a mistake people make that when it, it's a, uh, you know, one for him, one for the studio thing. Like, no, Spielberg cares equally about each one. And I think that's just, that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around. Like, wait, he made Jurassic Park, then Schindler's List, and he cared about both almost equally? See, I get confused because Spielberg has actually made a huge portion of his fortune off of Universal Studios, the theme park. If I were him and I had a giant stake in the theme park, I'd be doing but only writing things that would translate into theme park rides. (laughs) 
like Bridge of Spies would feature like an actual uh, some sort of ride that the spies have to go on. It would be more like Spy versus Spy instead of a historical drama with Tom Hanks. Because of that you could turn it into a ride. I, if I were him, I'd be like, we're making five new Harry Potter films. Don't worry about it. I'll direct them. I'll make up stuff. <laughs> we're going to get those sweet rides. Oh, yeah. And let's not forget that time Spielberg almost made Harry Potter. <laughs> and <laughs> then decided oh, not God. to because it would be too Spielberg. It's incredible if you look at all the things he's had a finger in as a executive producer or some sort of contributor, like the entire Men in Black series, Bumblebee, stuff like First Man. He came up with the premise of Bumblebee. That amazes me. He's the one who went to Travis Knight and said, yeah, let's remake the first act of the first movie, but good and throw some E.T. shit in there. Well, he's an executive producer on every Transformer film, so he had to have some amount of input in there somewhere. Yeah, just everything. He was he's listed as a screenwriter on the Poltergeist remake, for Christ's sake. Which is a very confusing thing to me. I saw that in Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, that doesn't seem right. I assume for I'm characters. sure he was grandfathered then, yeah. Yeah, he must. Well, I mean, look at his television work. Like, what does Steven Spielberg do when he moves to TV? Oh, he resurrects animation. <laughs> the great animation renaissance of the 90s is fucking Spielberg. It's all thanks to Spielberg. We would not have Batman the Animated Series if it weren't for Tiny Toons and Freakazoid at Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain, which Spielberg was super involved in. Like, oh, that yeah. was not him signing checks. Like, he had a roadmap in plan. We're like, no, we are going to bring back the cartoons I loved as a kid, but not as zombie versions of the stuff I liked when I was 12. We're going to make something that the children growing up in the early 90s are going to connect to, and that this is going to be their Looney Tunes. It's something very unique about Spielberg, I think, where he's a filmmaker who you have been able to watch mature as a person. But he's also never lost any kind of uh, childlike interests or ability to adapt and see change or want change. Like, I'll, like when he made Jurassic Park, he's the one who went, "No, I, I have to. I can choose between the Phil Tippett claymation dinosaurs, which look amazing, or I can try out this this ILM CGI test. I want to try the CGI." Like, even though he's an old-school, like, practical effects filmmaker, he still wants to try that. And, you know, kind of because of that, we got a birth of CGI. He's an old, Now he's even older, and he's literally directing Ready Player One in VR, with a goddamn VR headset <laughs> on, moving a camera around in a virtual reality space to direct. And that's something that's so fascinating to me about him as a director. You don't really get a combination of that. He's someone who brings a lot of old school elements because of how long he's been there but he doesn't get any but he loves viewing new technology or new techniques but doesn't get lost in it and up his own ass like a Cameron who you know is just doing like motion cap and and 3d years and stuff like he'll combine things or he'll put it aside or go this it's appropriate for this but not for this and it's a it's a mix a mix of personality you don't often see yeah, there's not a lot of let's shoot this in a brand new frame rate just because we can with Spielberg. <laughs> so Schindler's List. So Schindler's List. I've always wanted to say that on this podcast. A movie I feel the need to point out to our listeners. Cody watched to cheer himself up after the Super Bowl. I really don't like seeing the Patriots succeed. I just I don't like it. 
<laughs> makes me sad. I especially hate watching Super Bowls where there's like one touchdown. Not my thing. I think it should also be worth pointing out. Cody and I watched Schindler's List at the exact same time. Unrelated <laughs> to one another. I went home like, well, I can't sleep now. That game was terrible. Time to watch something not cheery, but to put me in a slightly better mood. Uh, I'm sorry. A- everyone else's hot take on how bad the Super Bowl was is not as good as the Super Bowl happened, so Mike and Cody watched Schindler's List. <laughs> the Super Bowl was so bad, it drove me to watch Schindler's List, which made me feel better watching one of the most extreme, horrifying things in human history. Same. Like, man, look at that camera work. Look at that acting. I'm so sad. Shirtless Ralph Fiends. I'm sorry, I'm going to need the next five minutes to weep. Not just because of Schindler's List, I'm looking at The Adventures of Tin Tin 2 on IMDb, and it makes me sad. Oh, don't. Have... I do that sometimes, and it makes me legitimately fucking sad. Why are you doing this to us, Peter Jackson? Anyway. Like, that is subtitle and everything. Like, he picked a story, and then I saw there was a new story from Peter Jackson, like, two months ago. Where he was like, I don't even know what story I want to do. I want to do them all. That's my Peter Jackson. He's been merging with Don Knotts over the years. But, um, I did something interesting today. I watched Spielberg's Night Gallery episodes. Ah. Uh, over breakfast. And it's really interesting. And then I went and listened to uh, Spielberg talk about them a little bit. And it's fascinating to watch those episodes because you get to see primordial Spielberg in a way you don't even get with like even stuff like Amblin or, or Sugarland Express or, or, or other early stuff. Because you get to see Spielberg try things that he just happens to be like seeing out there as a movie geek (laughs) like eyes like he talks about eyes and how eyes like one of the nbc producers like went in and kind of re-edited it because spielberg at the time started getting really into like european film so he's like doing all these like weird camera movements like he's doing reflections and like a crystal ball of the chandelier upside down and like stuff you never (laughs) expect spielberg to do in like a million years it's just cool to see Spiel- like Spielberg doing stuff that Spielberg really shouldn't be doing. <laughs> but you see like a couple of inklings of Spielberg stuff that's really like cool because he hasn't quite figured it out. Like he's still kind of aping other directors he's inspired by. Like there's John Ford camera movements and stuff. But you see like the Spielberg push in before it's the Spielberg push in. It's like it's there, but he he hasn't made it his own yet. But he's do he knows he wants to do the move. Wait, hold up, hold up. When he did the Spielberg push in, did he do it like on an inanimate object because he was still learning the ropes? Like he pushes in on a toaster instead of a small child. You're actually not that far off. Fucking nailed it. <laughs> okay, one one thing I want to get through because I'm I'm just terrified by this. Somehow, Steven Spielberg is listed as a, an executive producer on both Flintstone movies. Somehow. The Flintstones in Vivo Rock Vegas has a higher score than the original Flintstones. The original has Kyle McLaughlin in it. They can go to hell. And hell <laughs> Yeah, the original has a score of 22%. Vivo Rock Vegas has 25%. They created a whimsical Stone Age world out of nothing. Also, uh, surprisingly, that is not the lowest scored film that Spielberg's been attached to. That honor goes to Transformers The Last Night, which has a 15% score. <laughs> There's your fun facts for the day. That's why Spielberg should get his name really removed from those, because he checked out of those like right after one. So, uh, I bet it comes with a check, and uh, also there's probably a bunch of Universal theme park rides. Send him a check. Take his name off of it. 
Take a lot of people's names off of it, actually. Uh, do it like Miracle Man, where it's produced by the original producer. <laughs> Small aside, uh, I fell down an internet rabbit hole, and this is just a wonderful little story about why you can't trust the internet on anything. <laughs> Listed under Steven Spielberg's projects on Rotten Tomatoes is Robopocalypse. He is the director-producer. It has no score yet, but apparently it came out in 2013, which I feel like might be a mistake on this list. So then I opened up the Rotten Tomatoes uh, link to Robopocalypse. They have it up. 69% of audiences liked it. (laughs) This film that has not been made. Is that from another dimension? Directed by Steven Spielberg. Written by Drew Goddard. In theaters July 3rd, 2013. Wide release. Cast, Chris Hemsworth. Uh, it has an average rating awesome. of 3.9 out of 5, and it has 2,100 user ratings. I take that back, 2,101 user ratings. Are there reviews? Can you read a review for a movie that doesn't exist for us? Uh, oh, let me try. Um, okay, Aaron H. on November 5th, 2017 wrote, Yay, Steven Spielberg! With seven <laughs> exclamation points. Uh, Dusty L gave it one star and said, I think this movie got canceled unless anyone can prove otherwise. That was May 2nd, 2016. Yet he still gave it a bad review. One star because he was mad it got removed. Um, most of these are just reviews saying Steven Spielberg, need I say more? I'll watch anything directed by Spielberg. Oh, here's one. Pastor A gave this bad review saying human survival in the face of robot rebellion. This sounds like War of the Worlds. Total disappointment. Uh, Zach W. said, Chris Hemsworth is going to ruin the whole thing with his horrible acting. Chris, stay in Asgard. No word in that was capitalized. There were, oh, there was a period. I'll give him that. Have we someone rated it, someone gave it a fucking five-star review and then wrote three paragraphs talking about how good this is going to be based off the pedigree <laughs> of the people involved. That's not how reviews work. You have to wait till it comes out. And burying this episode is a beautiful lesson for anyone listening who is a, ever been obsessed with Rotten Tomatoes scores? B, just fascinated or interested, overly interested in reviews for movies and how important they are. When we say they mean nothing, they mean nothing. Scores mean nothing. Watch something for yourself, because guess what? The movie you're looking to score for may not actually exist. <laughs> 2,000 people before the movie came out went, boy, do I have opinions on this thing that doesn't exist. I feel like this is the internet personified. Like, this is... We've reached the apotheosis of the internet. It can, it can die now. God Luckily, damn. I, I went to IMDb to look up Robopocalypse to see how their reviews matched. They don't have a review list yet, so I will give them points for that. Uh, however, they do have Michael Bay as the director. I don't know if that's <laughs> true. Maybe, maybe Michael Bay signed on at some point. I don't know. Uh, they do agree that Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay. I wonder if that page for Old School 2 is still up. Uh, let's see. Oh, there's also a page for Lobo that has a plot description. <laughs> it's taken from a superhero hype article from 2001. A teenage girl partners with a seven-foot-tall, blue-skinned, indestructible creature to stop a gang of fugitives from wrecking havoc. It's Bumblebee? It's, that is it's actually Lobo. accurate to what that was at one point. Yeah. Um, although interestingly enough, if you click on the little blurb that advertises Lobo as a recommended movie, uh, it says, Hey, this thing isn't out yet. So we have no information for you. Good. Good. So you, you only get that blurb explaining the movie in the more like this section of IMDb. 
Oh, God, the kidnapping of Eduardo Mortera. Also a movie not made yet. Thank God, no score. Wait, hold up. Has a 63, 63 people have given ratings. That's how versatile Spielberg is. He can make movies in the future. Steven Spielberg already has a cast. Mark Rylance is going to be in this movie that he's no longer making. Cody, get off Rotten Tomatoes right now. I can't. We are recording a goddamn podcast. It's too powerful and confusing. I have to find out if the Lego Movie 2 is good. Oh, it is. Hey. All right, folks. In the meantime, while I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes, if you want to listen to any of our other shows, uh, in particular, we did two other Spielberg-centric episodes this month, uh, Hook Commentary and an episode talking just about Minority Report. You can find those by looking up Box Office Pulp. We're on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, Stitcher, uh, Twitter, if that's your thing. We're all over the place. I like the idea of someone not realizing until the end of this episode that they've been in the middle of Spielberg month this whole time. <sighs> Where am I? Who are you people? Why do you keep mentioning extraterrestrials? My God, the podcast is coming from inside the house. There's old men kicking cans outside my house. I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> Take me with you, Scatman Crothers. I didn't echo. I think we all say that right before we die. Oh, if if we pass on and Scatman Crothers is the Grim Reaper, I'm going to be like a character in Sandman. Like, nope, it's time to go. <laughs> I mean, that'd be oddly comforting. Be like, hey, Doc, what's up, man? Yeah. He's just like, you're interrupting my shitting time. <laughs> and that's when he drops you straight into hell. Anyways, that's been Box Office Pulp. Thank you for joining us. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. It's an ending. It's abrupt. But it'll do. I think my intuition has been about 75% right on and 25% not right on. So I'm going with the odds. Cody, while we're on the subject of fantasy reviews for movies that exist only in the diseased mind of some dude on the internet, uh, do us all a terrible disservice and look up a Last Jedi review on there. All right. It destroys SW. It's an inconsistent movie. Fencing hyperspace is not possible, and two minutes later knows all the details of it. The chase is absurd and boring. The First Order shouldn't have any problems sending more fleets just in front of them to cat them. Also, they don't have faster ships. Any civilian ship can outrun the First Order if they don't have that tracker thingy. A dumb thing also, in the author's tracking. Luke character is destroyed. Every plot opened in Fe is eliminated in the most absurd ways. The newest JW Admiral behaves like an idiot, not telling anyone the plan for no reason. Even when a mutiny takes place you take Poe and tell him, he's no damn spy, he just destroyed Star Killer Base Umaran. Also, if there's a spy, the plan wouldn't work anyway. They treat Poe like a reckless idiot, but he actually makes all the good calls, he's demoted for destroying a ship that would've killed them all. They make Husk a joke where our military leaders like Tarkin? All the movie is full with stupid jokes and the worst possible timing? 
Every serious situation has a stupid joke to ruin it. Ray is more Mary Sue than ever, using force powers like nothing, defeating Luke, fighting elite guards after one day training, by herself, against a rock. Also, the worst fight in all the movies. No reason for it. What are the guards doing attacking Kilo? Is not their new boss? Full of mistakes? Guards flipping and exposing their backs to the enemy? Guards aiming to the air or the weapons instead of attacking the exposed heads of Kilo and Ray? Weapons then disappear? No force powers being used. A joke. And it's the best part of the movie. Sadly, can't bite just a waste of time? The plot about selling weapons is also absurd. It doesn't make much sense that the Rebels and the First Order got different weapons from the same buyer. Also, makes more sense that they create their own weapons, especially the First Order. They have the most advanced Weaponary in the galaxy. That should come from their own ID, no from buyers. Does the buyers sell Death Stars also? If the dark side were a person, this would be the movie that they would make. For all the fact that the Star Wars original movies of the 1970s brought people together, helped us all to see one another as fellow travelers. This movie Davidus breaks, and plants a bitterness between people that might easily turn towards hate. I've never seen the name of a unifying franchise like Star Wars used in such a poor way. Star Wars was the classic fight. Good v. Evil. I'm not sure what this movie is but, it is not that. Failure doesn't cover what this movie is. Failure is when you don't succeed at something. This movie attempts to not only destroy itself but also the goodwill. Hard won mutual human appreciation, which the past movies worked hard to gain. I personally am upset at people having the arrogance to tell me what I should and shouldn't like. The answer to that kind of behavior is, no, no. You don't get to tell me what I should and shouldn't like, believe, what values I should have, or that I am a bad person for seeing, not what this movie is, but what this movie does. It drives we fellow humans away from each other, the absolute opposite of what Star Wars does. I won't be watching Star Wars Episode 9, 10, 11. Whatever, not until someone in this franchise remembers what Star Wars is all about, bringing humanity together with common values and ideas which we all share. Family, loyalty, hope, respect exactly who doesn't like respect and enjoys being disrespected. Etc. I feel sick just thinking that such fundamental ideas, ideals, values, and goals for one another have been forgotten. That and the plot holes need to be seriously avoided. So, I'm going to forget that.
Rogue One, SW The Force Awakens, Solo, and this movie, were ever made an aloe who never at the top to reflect, gain wisdom, and learn and then start over, wipe this divisive garbage off the face of the galaxy. Star Wars was never a for the critics movie and the arrogance that the critics have by claiming that this movie has all the emotion-rich action fans could hope for. Unfortunately, if that were what Star Wars meant to the fans, that might be accurate but that isn't even close. Star Wars does mean timeless core values like freedom from oppression love is an act not a feeling winning over hate as an act not a feeling reason and clear thinking winning over blind emotionalism and uncontrolled passions and feelings hate leads to the dark side this movie is nothing more than a hate-filled sermon where female bullies are justified I'm sorry but, never, I don't care what you look like or what you do or don't have between your legs or on your chest, hate looks equally ugly on everyone, this movie is as ugly as they get, mutual respect and appreciation is for everyone, hate isn't for anyone, I've this before elsewhere and I say it again here now, hate isn't something you control, Hate controls you, and, no one, whoever hated anyone, hates the object of their hate more than they hate themselves. Hate is an all-consuming emotion, devouring those who feel it faster than the people whom are the objects of their hate. Star Wars has been consumed by hatred, the core value of the dark side. Obvious to anyone who values love, both as a feeling and as a way of living life. What a monster. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. This meeting will come to order. The Legion of Pulp is now in session. In a moment, iTunes... Yes, Quizmotron? I was wondering, Emperor Palpatine, if I could, perhaps... Box Office Pulp thinks we need a few items to pawn on the black market. Box Office Pulp Guy, you have a podcast dedicated to movie analysis. Pinhead, your pleasure puzzles are deadly. Isaac, you've... You've got corn! Corn? What more do you need? Almost a nuclear warhead. What? All other supervillains have them. With a nuclear warhead, I should leave all of the podcasts to tear themselves apart with paranoia. Box Office Pope wants a magic lasso to hang himself with. Can I get a ship in a bottle kit? I demand more corn. To make my own ship in a bottle. 
Oh, enough of this. The hell do I look like, Santa Claus? We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my Pope drones are rewriting Apple's code to make our podcast number one on iTunes. Excuse me, Emperor. Quizmotron, what is it? All Quizmotron wants is pants. A decent pair of pants. Josh Vito wants pants, too. Order! Order! Tune in next week at popodcastnetwork.wordpress.com I don't even know how I deal with any of you on a daily basis.